Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Philosophical Disquisitions. It's been a long time since the last episode, possibly the longest hiatus, I think, since I started recording these. I apologize for that. There's been a lot of uh, complicated life events that have happened in the intervening months, but hopefully I'm back on track now and we'll be releasing a few episodes over the next few weeks. In this first episode, I'm going to be chatting to Daniel Susser. So Daniel is a philosopher by training and works at the intersection of technology, ethics, and policy. His research highlights normative issues in the design, development, and use of digital technologies and helps to clarify conceptual issues that stand in the way of addressing them through law and other forms of governance. He is currently the Haley Family Early Career Professor and Assistant Professor in the College of Information Sciences and Technologies, a research associate in the Rock Ethics Institute, and affiliated faculty member in the philosophy department at Penn State University. So Daniel and I have, I think, a very interesting chat about the use of AI in policing, and then also a more general conversation about how AI might assist human decision-making and the problems that that might cause. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and as per usual, if you like it, please consider rating it and reviewing it on your preferred podcasting service and spreading the word more generally. So thank you, and without further ado, I'll hand over to the conversation that I had with Daniel. So look, I generally try to be optimistic about the future and the role of technology in human life, but sometimes it's hard. If you spend your days thinking about the ethical and social implications of technology, you tend to be drawn towards the negative. What are all the ways in which this could go horribly wrong? One concern that I've returned to over the years is how technological tools, in particular AI and robotics, change our self-understanding and the relationships between individuals and social institutions. Now, one particularly important social institution is the police force, uh, who are increasingly using technological tools to help to efficiently and effectively deploy policing resources. Now, I've covered some criticisms of these tools in the past, but with my guest today, we're going to explore, I think, a new perspective on some of these concerns and also develop some broader reflections on how humans relate to machines in social decision making. So let's get into that some of that now. Uh, first of all, Welcome to the show, Daniel. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm excited to have this discussion. So let's start the discussion with policing. So you've written this interesting paper about, um, I can't remember the title of it exactly off the top of my head, but something like The Ethics of Pre Preemption and Predictive Policing, I think is the, the broad... Uh, yeah, close enough. Close enough, right. Uh, so I'll have a link to it in the show notes. Um, I want to try and unpack the argument that you present in that paper. And starting with the real basics here, you start with a distinction between different styles of policing, namely reactive and proactive policing. What is that distinction? And maybe you could give examples of those different approaches to policing. Yeah, sure. Um, so reactive policing is the kind of policing that I think people are most um, sort of normally like familiar with. Um, the goal in reactive policing is to respond to crime after the fact um, by identifying and apprehending and eventually punishing criminals. Um, so, for example, like people will be aware of this sort of orientation toward policing from like an episode of Law and Order where, you know, the police respond to a murder scene 
they gather evidence, they try to identify suspects, they build a case. Um, the, the sort of work of policing in the reactive mode is to sort of respond to crime after the fact. Uh, proactive policing, by contrast, and you can sort of guess just from the, from the label, um, the goal is rather to prevent crime from occurring in the first place. Um, so in sort of in the proactive policing mode, uh, law enforcement tries to identify where and when crime is likely to occur um, or who is going to or who is likely to perpetrate it and to intervene in advance in order to prevent uh, prevent crime from occurring. Um, so, for example, you know, police might like figure out that there is a particular corner where people often deal drugs. Um, and instead of waiting for them to deal drugs and arrest them, the police might station officers there in advance in order to discourage people from doing that uh, in the first place. I haven't thought about this before, but is there any significance or, di or distinction between preemptive approaches and proactive approaches? Or are they essentially equivalent for the purposes of this discussion? Yeah, I sort of use the terms more or less interchangeably in this paper. I think preemption is a consequence of sort of adopting the proactive model. Um, so if your goal is to prevent crime from occurring, um, you are going to act preempt preemptively uh, in order to do that, I think. So for I think, I think for this, the purposes of this discussion, we can use the terms pretty interchangeably. Now, you point out in your paper that you know police forces have always used some combination of these strategies, but you kind of suggest that it, the recent-ish history, maybe, I don't know, 20 or 30 years of policing, and particularly, I guess, in the United States, has involved a switch to the use of more proactive strategies. I mean, there's kind of two questions I wanted to ask for that. Like, what are What's the evidence for that? What's, what kind of supports that claim? But also assuming it's true, why do you think that has actually happened? Why has there been this greater emphasis on proactivity? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not a historian, but, um, you know, historians of law enforcement sort of emphasize that, like, since the beginning of organized policing, like in the UK in the mid 19th century, and a little bit later in the US, um, there's always been a kind of push and pull between an emphasis on crime prevention on the one hand and an emphasis on crime response on the other. So these two tendencies are kind of always operating um, in tandem. And so the question is sort of where more focus is placed. Um, and yeah, as you say, and, and for reasons that I'll try to describe, the emphasis of late has really, at least in the United States, pushed in the direction of prevention. Um, of adopting these kinds of proactive strategies. And we know that for a couple of reasons, you know, one, there's just like really great sociological work um, that documents these trends. So for example, the sociologist Sarah Brain at UT Austin um, has done really amazing field work. She embedded in the Los Angeles Police Department, the LAPD, and she documents extensively the ways that police sort of conceptualize themselves in the mold of like an intelligence agency, um, using data-driven tools to predict where and when uh, prime is uh, crime is going to occur. 
Um, and also, I mean, the other sort of way we know this is this is how police departments like tend to talk about themselves. Um, you know, so the NYPD in New York is like constantly bragging about its intelligence unit. Um, and so you can see, you know, from these different sources that the police today really tend to think about themselves as a kind of intelligence force that is going to uh, prevent crime from occurring in the first place. Um, your second question about like why the emphasis has sort of um, moved more firmly in this direction in the last few decades um, is a kind of complicated story. I try in the paper to trace um, some historical trends that push things in this direction and also some you know technological trends or trends in in technology development. Um, historically, it seems as though um, some of this is just like cyclical, I think. So um, in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, really the emphasis was more on reactive uh, policing strategies. And as crime rates in the United States started to climb, um, there was a sort of rejection of those approaches and this decision that we needed to be, the police needed to be more proactive. And so in the 1980s and 1990s, there was this real push for what came to be called community policing, um, where instead of just responding to reports of crime after the fact, um, police were sort of embedded in communities. Uh, we had the development of, you know, the kind of like the beat cop um, who walks the same the same beat every day, gets to know people in the community and really tries to sort of um, mitigate the determinants of crime in advance um, rather than waiting for crime to happen. So trying to like settle disputes before they turn violent and so on. Um, so in part, it's just a kind of, you know, a, perhaps a kind of cyclical thing. Um, a second historical trend, a really significant one, is the development in the 1990s um, by Bill Bratton and others. Um, Bratton was the head of the NYPD and then the LAPD. Um, and what Bratton developed is this system called CompStat, which was an attempt to sort of apply um, like corporate management style approaches to policing. Um, and most significantly, that meant incorporating a lot of data into policing. Um, so the emphasis sort of shifted from sort of relying on this decentralized model where, um, you know, individual police captains and their precincts sort of like had their own little dominions. The introduction of CONSTAT sort of centralized everything, required this constant reporting of data about crime to sort of like move up through the chain of command. Um, police captains and other managers were um, evaluated based on the kind of their numbers, essentially. And the move to CompStat really created this emphasis on like understanding patterns in all of this data um, and trying to forecast where crime would occur um, and try to sort of stamp it out in advance rather than waiting, uh, waiting for crime to occur. So um, CompStat sort of like took community policing and sort of re-engineered it to incorporate an enormous amount of, of data. Um, and then the third historical trend that just sort of everyone agrees is, is super important here um, was 9-11. 
um, which, you know, after the fact was sort of perceived by many um, as a failure of information sharing and intelligence gathering and sort of all of law enforcement, um, the military, the entire sort of like security apparatus in the United States um, really shifted after 9-11 into this important sort of intelligence posture. Um, and as Sarah Brain and others have argued, the police really came to be understood in the, in the decades since 9-11 as the sort of front line in the war against terror. Um, and this has led to a shift toward what you know police departments call intelligence-led policing. Um, so really trying to incorporate a lot of data and analytics and forecasting in an attempt to figure out where crime is going to occur, who is going to perpetrate it, um, and to mitigate those risks um, in advance. So I think there are these kind of like three historical trends, this kind of cyclical sort of development toward community policing, um, the introduction of CompStat and 9-11 sort of historically conspired to push us in this direction. Um, then there's also, uh, you know, a sort of set of technological developments that I think sort of hand, happened in parallel and contributed to this move toward more proactive policing. Um, you know, to some extent, this, like the idea of trying to identify where crime and when crime is going to happen in advance um, is super old. Um, you know, there are documentation of, you know, crime mapping. Um, you can imagine, you know, the like, you know, from TV crime procedurals, you can imagine like the cops with a map and push pins and, and threads and whatever, um, trying to figure out where crime has occurred and where it will occur in the future. Like there's documentation of that kind of thing happening in police departments since at least the turn of the 20th century. Um, but, you know, the introduction of computers into these processes um, had a real impact. It you know, made it a lot easier. You could start to like incorporate a lot more data once this was computerized. Um, you could identify trends over much longer periods of time because you could sort of save and compare maps over longer periods. Um, and also it sort of made these kinds of practices more widespread because you could start to like buy this technology sort of like off the shelf software that helped you do it. Um, so you didn't have to develop these tools um, in each police department sort of from scratch. Also, um, more recently, this kind of like crime mapping technology has become much more professionalized, uh, incorporating like theoretical ideas from academic criminology and sociology into forecasting efforts. And so rather than just kind of relying on the, you know, the very local knowledge and sometimes like the implicit knowledge of cops sort of reporting about their beats, you start to see like these sort of theoretical um, interventions that try to help um, police forecast and understand where crime is going to occur. Um, so Taken together, like these, you know, historical trends on one hand and these technological developments on the other, um, I think have sort of together led us to where we are, which is the incorporation of a lot of data-driven predictive technologies into policing, um, you know, with the goal of, of trying to, to prevent crime from happening in the first place. 
Yeah, I mean, I suspect that um, like what, the part of the looking last point you're making is that there's a kind of a shift towards greater use of data and analytics across the board in human society, like not just in, in policing. And so it's yeah. sort of unsurprising that policing gets caught up in this. And I mean, this is something we might re- return to, but the kind of development of crime analytics sort of helps a little bit as well when it comes to maybe a fundamental problem with preemptive or proactionary approaches to you know, whether it's terrorism prevention or crime prevention or whatever the case may be, which is you know, proving their effectiveness. Uh, so that, that, that might be something that we'll come back to. You mentioned there the sure. the use of te- these technological tools. I'm familiar with some of them, obviously. I think people would have will have heard, you know, the phrase like predictive policing. And you, you mentioned the example of heat maps or you know, maps of criminal activity. Is there more kind of diversity to the technological tools that are used by police forces to assist with this this pre preemptive approach? Um, are there other kinds of technological aids that we should be aware of? I mean, this is I know this is a broad question because there's lots of kinds of technology used by police forces, but um, what are the ones that you think are most important for understanding this particular debate about you know, the ethics of preemption? Yeah. So, I mean, as you say, I think there are lots of different tools that are used. Um, the the kind of like crude distinction that I draw from uh, in the paper is this distinction that a lot of people who work on predictive policing make between what are sort of called place-based policing technologies on the one hand versus um, person-based or what's sometimes called offender-based predictive policing tools on the other. And the basic distinction here is between um, whether what is being forecasted is where and when crime is going to occur um, or who is going to commit crime. Um, So place-based or geographic technologies, um, you use the term heat map. Um, So yeah, this is like a common uh, common set of software tools that are used to sort of identify hotspots or um, you know, zones geographically where given historical patterns, um, the police have reason to believe crime is likely to occur um, in the future. Um, the, the particular piece of software that is sort of the most discussed um, place-based predictive policing tool uh, is uh, a program called PredPol, um, which was developed by uh, an anthropologist and a computer scientist, I think at at UCLA. Um, and PredPol uses information about past arrests. Um, so it in, inputs data about where arrests have been made and when in the past. Um, and it uses that in order to try to advise police departments about where they should allocate enforcement resources in the future. And they literally produce like, uh, you know, a Google map type interface um, that has, you know, like color coded uh, zones on it that sort of helps direct police de- uh, police departments um, of where they should place their enforcement resources. Uh, and there are other tools like this. Another one I talk about really briefly in the paper called Hunch Lab, which basically does the same thing, but sort of incorporates more um, theoretical, like a, a, a more sophisticated theoretical apparatus. So it deploys a theory called risk terrain modeling, which incorporates in addition to, you know, information about past arrests and things like that. It also incorporates information about 
the the local environment. And so, you know, apparently there is reason to believe that like crime is more likely around certain kinds of places like pawn shops and public transit. Um, And so Hunch Lab sort of incorporates that kind of criminal logical um, information into its model. But ultimately, it tries to do the same thing. It tries to identify places and times where crime is likely to occur and to help help the police um, direct their resources to to those places. Um, By contrast, person-based predictive policing tools try to understand who specifically is likely to become implicated in future crimes. Um, So the most famous example in the US at least of of person-based predictive policing tools is the Chicago Police Department's uh, strategic subjects list, um, or sometimes called it its heat list. Um, And what this tool and tools like it do is pull together a lot of information about um, people who have been involved in crime um, interestingly, people, you know, both people who've been involved in crime as perpetrators and also people who have been involved as victims, um, a lot of demographic information, um, and then to use sort of sophisticated, you know, social networking analysis and other kinds of analytic strategies to try and figure out like who is most likely going to be implicated in future crimes. Um, and, I think it's kind of obvious that like these two different kinds of strategies, identifying places where crime is likely to occur or times it's likely to occur on the one hand versus the people who are likely to be implicated in crime, raise different sorts of ethical um, and other critical questions. And so I try to to outline some of both in the paper, though ultimately I, I end up focusing my interest mostly on the second category, on person-based po- predictive policing tools uh, and the kinds of ethical uh, considerations that I think we should we should uh, take into account. Yeah, I mean, I've been kind of interested in this area for a while, and I've, as I said, done a couple of other interviews on it. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, how widespread is the use of these kinds of tools in policing now? Uh, you know, when I first started reading about it and talking about it, we were talking about kind of maybe a handful of police departments using these tools and you know certain trials or experiments with them in certain locations, and there was some skepticism about how likely they were to take off. I mean, what's the reality now? Is it sort of become essentially embedded in policing? It's normalized in policing? Or is it more patchwork than that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, unfortunately, I think the answer is that we don't know exactly. Um, So an interesting um, sort of dimension of this whole set of questions is that there is a lot of opacity around the use of these kinds of technologies by police departments. Um, You know, in the United States, there are many, many hundreds of different individual police departments, um, maybe thousands, there are like very, a lot of them. Um, And we, it's hard to sort of keep tabs on them all. Um, And it's also the case that police departments don't, you know, unless they're made subject to significant um, public pressure, they don't have to necessarily disclose um, what kinds of tools they use in their work. Um, likewise, these companies tend not to to say a lot about the specific, um, like their specific clients. 
Um, so PredPol, uh, just to take one example, has has claimed in promotional materials that it's used in more than 60 police departments. Um, famously, it was used in the LAPD, um, so a very you know very large police department um, until last year, when after significant public pressure, um, the LAPD decided to drop to drop its use of the tool. Um, it, in Chicago, it's interesting with the strategic subjects list, um, unlike PredPol, which is a proprietary technology um, owned by and developed by a company that the police department um, pays to use, um, the strategic subjects list was developed by Chicago PD itself. So there was like a little bit more transparency around that. Um, and my understanding is they claim at least to have have wound down it, the strategic subjects list um, and not not to be that apparently since 2019 they they claim not to use it anymore um, but you know to a large extent we really just don't know and this is one of the one of the very tricky things about these conversations around predictive policing is you know part of the of the work is figuring out sort of like how, how much these technologies are being used, where, by whom, and so on uh, in the first place. Yeah, and we might get into some of the reasons as to why there's been this winding down or this public opposition uh, now yeah. as we kind of shift into discussing you know, the ethical side of this. I guess a simple argument that can be made on behalf of technologies of this sort, and I guess the, you know, the proactionary approach to policing in general is something like you know, the old medical heuristic or that you know, prevention is better than cure, like surely it's better mm -hmm. to stop things before they happen, stop people committing crimes or going to jail or whatever the case may be, than waiting for it to happen and, and reacting to it. But obviously the viability of that as a defense of this technology hinges on a number of other questions and other aspects of it. You know. And one initial question, I guess, is how accurate are these tools and are they actually effective in predicting and I guess ultimately then preventing crime? I mean, what do we know about that? Yeah. So, you know, much like your last question about the prevalence of these tools, which departments are using them, how many and so on, um, for similar reasons, questions about their utility um, and their, their accuracy, um, there are very difficult to answer in part because so many of these tools are proprietary because we don't know, um, you know, sort of which departments are using them in the first place. We're not, we don't have auditors are not given access to these tools in order to determine um, how accurate they are. For the most part, we have to go just on the word of the companies that are selling them. Um, so it's very difficult to know how accurate they are. Um, having said that. I think we have pretty good reason to worry that they are unlikely to be very accurate. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of reasons for that. Most importantly, um, they tend to use pretty unreliable proxies for crime. Um, so to take the example of PredPol, one of the, the most sort of stringent criticisms of the PredPol tool is that the data it inputs into its models in order to predict where crime is likely to occur in the future is data about arrests. So there is an enormous sort of, you know, historical record, like say, for example, in Los Angeles of 
where and when uh, people have been arrested by the police. And PredPol predominantly uses that data about past arrests as proxies for where future uh, future crime is likely to occur. But you know, arrest is an arrest data is not the same thing as data about criminality. People are arrested wrongly um, all the time. And we have special reason to believe that, you know, in communities that have historically been over-policed, um, lots of people are likely to be arrested, um, even though they are not guilty of, of having committed any kind of crime. And so if the tools are, you know, being, if these, you know, machine learning models and other statistical techniques are being driven by data, not about past crimes, but rather things like past arrests, um, there's reason to worry about their accuracy in predict, you know, predicting future crimes, um, rather than what it seems like is the case, which is that they're just producing predictions about future arrests. Um, and, and for reasons we can talk about, that ends up um, becoming a kind of uh, vicious feedback loop that creates or reinforces all sorts of problematic dynamics. Yeah, and I guess that, that was sort of my next question, because I mean, the, the technology can be inaccurate and unreliable in, in ways, but you know, if it's, if it's chaotic or random and it's inaccuracies, there might be reasons to be worried about that, but they don't necessarily, I think, correlate with the, the kinds of reasons that people object to this technology or that I've seen, which is usually more to do with the sense that they are systematically biased or that they reinforce certain prejudices or biases. Obviously, this is a major feature of the conversation around the ethics of policing around the world, but I, you know, in the United States in particular, and I imagine this is you know part of the reason why the use of these tools has been controversial and why some police forces might be winding down or not implementing them as much anymore. But maybe you could talk a bit about this concern about the kind of systematic bias um, and prejudice kind of embedded in the use of these tools. You know, what's what's the evidence for it? Is this a concern that we should be taking very seriously? Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, a lot of these tools, again, we don't have an enormous amount of insight into their inner workings because most of them are proprietary and they're, they're, um, they're held secret, you know, using sort of trade secrecy laws. Um, but given, you know, to, to whatever extent they are using sort of um, statistical techniques, um, especially contemporary, you know, machine learning and other analytics techniques to infer from past data about what is likely to happen in the future. I think it's, you know, it's intuitively obvious that we should be especially worried about issues of discrimination and bias in contexts where historically there has been a lot of discrimination and bias. So in the United States, um, as I think as everyone is, is pretty aware, um, there is a, a long and terrible history of biased and discriminatory policing, um, especially against communities of color. Um, and so if the, the whole point of these tools is to sort of ingest information about how police have done their job in the past in order to predict where, when, and how they should do it in the future, um, using these kinds of 
um, statistical methods, using these kinds of data-driven predictive technologies to guide that, um, to guide that work is, is worrying because um, the, the chances of um, inferring from these prior data sets um, bias and discriminatory strategies for how to direct law enforcement in the future is really likely. Um, so, you know, we don't have an enormous amount, from what I understand, an enormous amount of evidence, um, direct evidence of this in the predictive policing context, just because we have so little access to these tools. But, you know, in a, in a comparable case, um, there has been an enormous amount of news and discussion and academic debate and so on about um, similar tools that have been used in the criminal justice system, um, tools like the compass algorithm that um, tries to predict the likelihood that um, an arrestee will recidivate if um, allowed out on bail. And then based on that risk analysis, you know, judges can make um, bail decisions and independent audits by groups like ProPublica in the U.S. have shown that that algorithm and algorithms like it are deeply biased against um, black arrestees, um, you know, showing that like when the algorithm errors, it tends to suggest that black arrestees are, are riskier than they in fact are, and white arrestees are less risky than they in fact are. So tools like um, predictive policing technologies that deploy you know, similar sorts of um, computational and statistical methods in sort of adjacent criminal justice contexts um, definitely are biased against uh, people of color in the United States. And so for both the kind of theoretical reason and the sort of more um, empirical, more empirical reason, I think we have reason to worry about these kinds of um, dynamics being reinforced by predictive policing tools. Um, and, you know, you can take a really easy example to see, you know, sort of illustrate this dynamic. Um, in the case of like PredPol and other place-based Predictive, predictive policing technologies, you know, if historically um, communities of color were over-policed, um, they will have been the site of more, you know, proportionally more arrests than communities where there were fewer police patrolling. Um, so that data is then, you know, fed into the PredPol algorithm, um, which then suggests that future arrests are likely to be made in these places where they were historically made. Um, so this drives allocation of police resources right back into those communities that were historically over-policed. Um, because that's where more police end up, you know, uh, over-policing continues, more arrests are, disproportionately more arrests are made, um, which data about which then feeds back into the algorithm and seems to confirm the original hypothesis um, Christian Lum and William Isaac call this selection bias meeting confirmation bias, which I think is a sort of perfect way, perfect way to describe it. Um, so for both, both for, you know, theoretical kind of intuitive and, um, and some amount of like empirical, um, reasons we, I do think should, we should worry very significantly about, um, these kinds of tools reflecting and then reinforcing pre-existing, um, dynamics of, of racial and other kinds of discrimination. Yeah, I mean, that kind of prompts a number of questions. I mean, like that phrase, it's a, the, the meeting point of selection bias and confirmation bias. I, I like that. 
uh, you know, an analogy, it's not obviously a direct analogy, is that like, you know, if you have a job selection criteria that you need to be have a certain amount of experience to get the job, it kind of means that certain people can't ever be employed because they can't get the experience that they need to get get the job itself, if you know what I mean. So it's a, a similar phenomenon, I think, maybe occurs with certain populations in these communities that uh, individuals within these communities that they're sort of tied to their histories and the tools don't allow them to escape those histories, right? Yeah, you're in, in, I guess in some cases, it's like it's a problem if you can't get into these kinds of feedback loops in, in, in the kind of hiring case that you're describing. Um, and in other cases, like in the policing case, it can be a problem because you can't get out of, of the feedback loops. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good way of, of putting it. Um, I mean, I, obviously, I'm familiar with the, some of the debate around Compass and, you know, the company itself will defend the algorithm and say that it isn't biased. And then there's the whole kind of technical debate or technical literature as, literature as well about whether it's possible to create a system that is perfectly fair or you know, everything has certain trade-offs within it. That There is always some choice between different kind of fairness concepts or ideals. I wonder how that debate then affects issues around predictive policing. I mean, this is well, those two questions I, I have. Is like, are there ways of kind of eliminating the bias in the data set? Are there the ways in which we could improve this technology? I, I know your kind of deeper claim is maybe that's not sort of the way to think about it. But um, you know, what what are the discussions out there about that? Like, is is there a way of technically correcting for these problems in the technology? Um, maybe. So there is certainly an enormous amount of effort being expended to try and do that. And, you know, there are some methods that seem that seem quite promising for sort of debiasing various tools. I think in the last um, five or six years, anyone who's been keeping an eye on these um, academic discussions around algorithmic bias generally. So if you know predictive policing technologies and the kinds of problems I was just describing are sort of a special case of this broader, broader phenomenon of algorithmic bias. And just, you know, an enormous research community has sprung up in the last several years to try and deal with this, um, bringing together computer scientists and other technical experts on one hand with uh, legal scholars and philosophers and social scientists on the other. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, I, I'm sure there is room for improvement. Um, and I think some of the, you know, I'm not a technical expert, but I, I work with a lot of technical experts who work on these kinds of issues, and they give me reason to believe that some progress can be made. Uh, I'm skeptical that, you know, we can sort of like permanently rid these technologies of uh, the tendency to reproduce um, problematic bias and discrimination, um, in part because you know discrimination itself is not a bad thing. You know these you know, the, the attempt to classify things, which sort of all predictive algorithms are are ultimately trying to do. The attempt to classify is an attempt to discriminate between different categories. Um, we 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 have to discriminate, and we want to discriminate at some level, right? You know, in, in an ideal world, the police would very um, accurately discriminate between criminals and non-criminals. Um, the question is, what kinds of discrimination are normatively legitimate or acceptable? 
and which ones aren't. And I think, you know, the, de the debates um, here are about sort of, you know, what kinds of variables are acceptable to use to make judgments about um, whether or not people belong to socially salient categories, um, whether we should be making, um, classifying people um, along those, into those categories in the first place. And, you know, that's a set of like normative political questions that I think is going to continue into perpetuity. Um, and what we're seeing with the incorporation of you know, digital technologies into this space is just a kind of a complicating factor. So not only do we need to think about um, the sort of basic political question of what kinds of you know, classificatory systems do we want to use to categorize people? Um, what kinds of assumptions can we make about people and so on? We now also have to think about how the introduction of digital technologies complicates and changes and otherwise affects that affects that picture. Yeah, I mean, so like one reason why you might look for these technical fixes or, or be kind of keen to find them is what you just mentioned, which is that we have to engage in some kind of discrimination or sorry discrimination when it comes to the use of you know policing resources right we you know we have to we we have scarce resources we have to decide where to deploy them if we're going to be effective in preempting and preventing crime and also the, the larger point that we we want it to be discriminating in one sense in kind of distinguishing between criminals and non-criminals and you know this kind of raises a larger question well, there's two larger questions one has to do with you know, what the use of these tools does in a particular political context or political social context. And I, you know, I think that's your larger point in the paper. So we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment. The, the other thing that it prompts, though, is that, you know, is there a reason to think that the use of these technological tools is worse? Because this is the mm. point that defenders of the technical tools will, will make. So, you know, people like John Kleinberg and Cass Sunstein, when they defend the use of these analytical tools in social decision-making will say, well, look, you know, police officers are going to be biased, police departments are going to be biased in various ways, and there's evidence to suggest that they're, some in some cases, horrifically biased historically in certain parts of the U.S. and around the world, right? So at least we, if we use these tools, we can render the kind of decisions that we're making about you know, what kinds of evidence are relevant or, or what kinds of discrimination we're engaging in a little bit more transparent and technical, so if we took these tools away, we'd have other forms of bias to contend with. So is it really any better or worse? And maybe there's some reason to think it might be better with the use of these tools. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, I guess I have a couple thoughts about that. Um, I mean, I think that argument in the abstract makes a certain amount of sense. Um, though I think in in practical terms, we might want to to push back a little bit, um, you know, yeah, we're always operating under conditions of scarcity. We have to make decisions about how to allocate the resources we have. Um, humans, like in general, are like very terrible decision makers. Um, we are subject to all sorts of biases, not just the kinds of um, racial, gender, and other kinds of like prejudices that we worry about, but also, you know, as behavioral, behavioral uh, psychologists and behavioral economists have long shown, just all we're we're just very bad at making. Um, decisions under conditions of uncertainty. So why not incorporate these digital tools into our decision-making processes? Um, 
you know, I think one thing we should keep an eye on is that just in general, like new technologies tend, I think, to like amplify or accelerate pre-existing social dynamics. Like this is just like a general phenomenon. And so if, as we were just discussing, if we know that in the law enforcement context there, you know, at least in the United States, there has historically been an enormous amount of discrimination, especially against communities of color. Um, There's reason to worry that without an enormous amount of care and attention, um, you know, sort of incorporating sophisticated digital technologies into these, you know, otherwise quite bad and problematic practices um, is is likely to just you know amplify them and make them and make them even worse. Um, uh, an even more practical consideration is that you know one way that we deal you know in in the non-technological context, like one way we deal with the potential risks that are inherent in these kinds of decisions for, you know, like decisions about where to allocate enforcement resources and so on, um, is by building up, you know, systems of accountability, you know, creating institutional practices that we, we hope will and have reason to believe will, you know, catch error and correct them, and so on. Um, And, you know, for reasons we can talk about, digital technologies tend to make that kind of accountability um, really difficult. Um, So, you know, I don't talk about this much in the paper, but there's reason to believe that holding kind of, you know, black boxed um, machine learning algorithms accountable, diagnosing problems, um, finding sources of bias and discrimination and so on, can be really tricky. Um, in part, as I've you know mentioned a number of times already, these are often proprietary technologies, and so for legal reasons, um, auditors, other citizens tend not to have access to these tools um, to perform the kinds of you know accuracy checks and other things that we might want. Um, and then also, you know, this is a sort of a, a longer and and more complicated conversation, but these these algorithms can be much more difficult to understand, even if one does have access to them. Um, And so, um, you know, people are hard to understand too, but unlike a person who you can sit down and say, walk me through your decision-making process, um, you know, document the process as you're going along, um, you know, on the one hand, computers can be quite transparent in that they work sort of formulaically and they can leave very useful uh, trails if they are designed to. Um, But again, for reasons we can talk about, um, machine learning and other predictive technologies tend to make that quite tricky. Um, So again, while the argument that like incorporating technologies into these very flawed human systems um, could make things better, I think is perfectly reasonable in the abstract. Um, but for for these reasons, I, I think we we should be we should, we should be skeptical of those arguments at least for now. Yeah, I mean, as you say, that kind of raises a larger debate about you know explainability and transparency yeah. of uh, machine learning and black box tools like this. I do want to, however, talk about your kind of main critique or observation or perspective that you offer on the predictive policing debate. So, you know, towards the end of your paper. In essence, you argue that 
the problem here might not be so much with the tools themselves, but rather who gets to use them, you know, which actors and which institutions get to use them. And so I mean, the main conclusion, as I take it, is that the police force may not be the ideal institution to use these kinds of predictive tools, but there are other social institutions that might be more appropriate users of them, particularly certain kind of social workers. I guess there's two questions then to ask about that. You know, why is it that the police are not the appropriate users? And then why would these other institutions and these other actors be better users of this technology? Yeah, sure. So um, so my focus in that part of the paper is specifically on person-based predictive policing technologies. So I kind of put questions about um, the more geographic place-based tools to one side and focus on this question of like under what conditions is it acceptable for the police to proactively, preemptively attempt to flag individuals as you know suspicious persons um, to draw the attention of the state's like law enforcement apparatus towards specific individuals, um, and you know we could talk about some of the other critiques that I think are quite good um, that that raise different worries about. Um, the kinds of you know variables or other demographic characteristics might be or might not be acceptable in these kinds of strategies. Um, there's a whole um, you know body of work on a really similar set of strategies that are sort of non-technological. Um, you know, we, we talk about it as sort of racial and other kinds of profiling, and people have asked a lot of important and I think uh, revealing ethical questions about the ethics of profiling, some of which is, is super applicable in this context. But as you say, the, the, the dimension that I kind of want to add to this discussion in this paper is to sort of shift to thinking about who we should allow um, to make sort of preemptive, predictive judgments about people um, and, and under what conditions. And my, 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 Intuition is that like the social role that is occupied by the person making these judgments has an impact on the moral equation that we are trying to sort out. Um, so put in like the, the most like the simplest terms, I think that the, the moral question we're asking when we ask whether or not it's acceptable for the police to use these kinds of technologies that are flawed for all of the reasons we've just been discussing. Um, so we know that they are not perfect. We know that they are going to make mistakes. Um, and given that, like, is it acceptable for the police to use them to potentially prevent crime um, by flagging individuals as potentially like people who are potentially going to become implicated in crimes. And at a very basic level, I think the question we're asking there is, should we um, accept or should we ask individual citizens to bear the risk of being wrongly identified by the state um, in favor of the benefit to public safety? So in a kind of like basic sort of cost benefit um, sort of like utilitarian analysis, um, we're asking like, should individuals be asked to absorb the the risks inherent in producing more public safety um, given the use of these tools? And what I point out is that like that basic equation 
changes if we ask the same question about a different different people using those tools. So if the question is not about the police, but rather about social workers or social service providers um, using these kinds of tools to flag people who might potentially become implicated in crime for any number of reasons, um, I think the equation shifts. And instead of asking whether um, individuals should absorb the potential risks of these systems in in the name of public safety. Instead, we start asking like, okay, if this system errs, if you know this system flags someone who is not in fact um, you know, in need of resources or otherwise um, experiencing conditions that might um, drive them toward crime or drive them toward becoming implicated in crime. Um, instead of asking that, we're asking like, if the, if the algorithm errs, if the predictive system errs, um, and people are incorrectly flagged as needing these kind as as being in, in, in implicated in these kinds of conditions, then the risk is that society is going to like expend extra resources on someone who doesn't need them. Um, and we have to balance that against the potential benefit of sort of driving resources toward the people who need them most. So when the police are using these tools, the risk is falling on individuals in order to furnish the benefit to public safety. Whereas in the case of social service providers, because of their orientation, um, you know, police are oriented ultimately toward uh, public safety, whereas social service providers are oriented ultimately toward um, improving individual people's circumstances. And so the, the moral question in that case is, um, should society bear the risk of, you know, needlessly apportioning scarce resources to people who don't need them in the name of the potential benefit of giving those resources to people who do? Um, and as I say at the end of the paper, it's not obvious to me that, like, the answer is, like, 100%. We should obviously move in the direction of putting these tools in the hands of social service providers. We can talk about the kinds of trade-offs that that might also incur. But I just want to flag that it, it shifts the moral terrain of these debates a little bit in a way that um, seems sort of relevant and, and promising to me. Yeah, I mean, I find that an interesting argument. And But when I was reading it, I was thinking about counterexamples or problems with it. And I think part of the issue here is just, you know, who we classify as occupying this kind of social worker type role that you identify. Yeah it's actually, it's a little bit fuzzy. And so you know, the example I was thinking of was like childcare protection workers that often do have this kind of role of helping out or assisting parents of children that they perceive to be at risk, but then also have a kind of a quasi-enforcement role, at least in, in Ireland where I live, they have this quasi-enforcement role that if, if things go wrong, they you know issue court orders and take um, children away from, from their parents. And there has been some controversy about the use of kind of actuarial risk prediction tools in that field. So, uh, yeah, I just wonder what, what you think about that example and kind of the, the problems of identifying the the institutions or the actors who kind of fall within the, the category of social workers that you identify in, in the paper. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, the paper is, is fairly short and I don't get into an enormous amount of detail about this, but I should. Um, I, I think the... The, the way you pose it, it's, e it's even more complicated, I think, than the way you just, than you just posed it. I mean, on the one hand, a lot of social service providers um, tend to play 
you know, quasi law enforcement roles, as you mentioned. Um, you know, there's a great book by Virginia Eubanks, um, who a political scientist who does a lot of ethnographic work in the U.S. around how these predictive tools end up getting deployed um, in a lot of social services contexts. And she actually looks at um, the case of, of child protective services, you know, the example that you mentioned, um, in a particular place not far from where I live um, in Pennsylvania, and finds that the predictions are enormously biased for a number of different reasons having to do with the kinds of inputs that go into the predictive models. Um, and I think that we absolutely need to be worried about that because, again, the the, the sort of orientation of the the actor using the tool in that context is a kind of law enforcement um, orientation. The, the goal is to identify children who might need to be removed from potentially dangerous homes. Um, on the flip side, it's also the case that like the police often play roles that look a lot like social service provision. Um, so, you know, the police don't like that. Um, and there's a lot of consternation about that amongst police officers. But when you talk to, you know, according to, you know, like the, the, the sociologists who write about this stuff, when you talk to police officers about like what they actually spend their days doing, a lot of what they're doing is kind of sort of social service provision. Um, so it's complicated, like in both directions. It's both the case that the police are, are kind of not just doing law enforcement work and social service providers are not just doing social service provision. Um, so I guess the, the, like, the level of granularity at which we need to think about this question is not sort of just at the name of the institution that we're worried about, whether we're talking about police or we're talking about child protective services or whatnot. Um, we need to drill down more deeply into what is the like specific orientation of the, the work that people are doing. And part of how I try to um, to deal with that question in the paper is just by pointing out that this history that we discussed earlier of uh, the police in the United States over the last several decades adopting a much more proactive sort of intelligence-oriented law enforcement posture and also uh, a sort of move away from um, providing sort of social service um, kinds of work as opposed to traditional law enforcement work suggests to me that we are in a moment where the police are perhaps particularly poorly situated to use these tools in a way that is plausibly just. Um, and whether or not and which social service providers might be in a better place or better position to use them justly is, is, a, is a more complicated question. Perhaps child protective services is not the right, the right group, um, but you can imagine um, other organizations that are sort of more firmly oriented toward providing services rather than um, worrying about you know, mitigating risk and harm uh, might be. Um, a second thing I was mentioning quickly, though, is that I think your question also points to a, a different complication, which is that the it is also these questions are wrapped up in broader sort of social and economic conditions that ultimately have to be taken into account in order to understand at a case by case level whether or not these tools are going to make things better or worse. Um, so, you know, another of, of Virginia Eubanks's um, examples in her book is 
Um, she looks at the um, welfare system in the state of Indiana um, and how it uses predictive tools to sort of flag, um, to basically prioritize people um, for the provision of, of social welfare. And so there is a huge scarcity of, of resources. The social services agencies um, are extremely underfunded. And as a result, what that prioritizing ends up meaning is like looking for ways to exclude people from social welfare. Um, but we can imagine that like if those conditions were changed and if social welfare was better funded in the United States and that moved from a situation of you know, extreme resource scarcity to one of, you know, if not resource surplus, at least one of like less scarcity. Um, the the question that these predictive tools would be used to answer could plausibly, instead of being, um, you know, who can we exclude from getting these resources, could could shift just as a function of the of the economic conditions changing to, you know, who needs these resources? We have them, and we want to get them to the people who need them. Um, so. I think the sort of question about like the broader social, economic and other conditions in which these um, the social actors and the tools that they're deploying um, are situated kind of can't be can't be discounted when we're we're trying to think through the, the ethical and political ramifications of these tools. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I, I did interview Virginia before. So if people are interested in kind of exploring the details of some of oh, those good. case studies that she performed, they can go back to the earlier episode with Virginia about that. I, I mean, your point there is, is links as well, I think, to the broader ideology behind certain social institutions. So I think you know, one problem with social welfare institutions it, when it comes to the use of these tools in the way that you're envisaging is that, unfortunately, a lot of the kind of political ideology underlying social welfare systems these days, in certain, and it's true in Ireland as well, about kind of weeding out frauds or, yeah, as you say, kind of excluding people from the net as opposed to finding people who really need it. So, and you know, shifting the orientation from uh, who can we help um, away from who can we exclude would probably make a big difference to the ethicality of the deployment of these tools. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we like we we were discussing before, you know, I think it, technologies in general tend to sort of like amplify pre-existing social and political dynamics. So to some extent, you know, the question of whether or not tools are going to be to be helpful or harmful in the long run is at least in part a function of what kinds of dynamics they're amplifying. Um, and of course, you know, for reasons that we've been discussing, it's not the, the causation is not only one directional. The tools can feed back into these systems, reinforce these dynamics, and make them even worse. Um, but to some extent, if we want to, you know, create just societies, we can't just look at the technologies that people are using. We have to to, to correct the background conditions that they're operating in. Yeah, um, I'm conscious of the kind of amount of time we've got a, an hour recorded now. I did have a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about the other paper. I'm kind of, sure. I'm in two minds about whether to go on. I suppose I'll just ask you them. It's okay if it's a, the episode is longer. I've had obviously longer episodes before. Um, yeah, so this is kind of a complete uh, diversion away from the policing discussion, although I think it's related. You, you, you've recently written this, um, or maybe I can't actually remember when this was published, uh, a paper, a co-authored paper about automation and human decision-making and I think you proposed a, quite an interesting you know, framework for thinking about the different modes of automated decision-making in society uh, that 
distinguish between them based on the appearance of automation versus the reality of automation. Maybe you could just explain that framework for listeners, please. Sure, thanks. Yeah, I actually wrote these papers around the same time, though the, this paper um, was was published much earlier. The predictive policing paper um, was for a volume that took a long time to publish, so it just it just came out. Um, but yeah, that that's work that I did um, with Karen Levy, who is a sociologist at Cornell, and Kyle Brennan Marquez, um, who is a legal scholar at the University of Connecticut, and. It was for a, a symposium at Berkeley Law on, on regulating automated decision making. And the, the prompt or, or the brief that we were sort of supposed to respond to was specifically about the use of so-called humans in the loop as a regulatory mechanism um, for ensuring that automated decision making systems kind of operate the way we want them to. So I, I think most of your listeners will probably be aware of this, this term, humans in the loop. But for those who aren't, um, the idea sort of describes a broad set of strategies for incorporating like some kind of human oversight into otherwise automated decision-making processes. Usually um, when, when people talk about humans in the loop, they think about a kind of like override capacity. So maybe a machine like issues a decision, but then a human reviews it before it is put into practice or something like that. Um, and so as we were thinking about this idea of humans in the loop um, and, and whether or not they were a sort of useful um, regulatory mechanism, we, we started to, yeah, to contemplate this question about like a sort of the appearance of a human in the loop versus um, the reality of a human in the loop. And what we ended up sort of settling on as we tried to kind of like schematize this, this question for ourselves um, is that you can kind of imagine like a two by two matrix where on along one dimension is the question of like whether a system is fully automated or if the system incorporates um, significant human uh, judgment or intervention. And along the other dimension, you can imagine um, whether it appears to. So whether or not the people who are interacting with or are impacted by these systems um, detect that the system is either is, is fully automated or if there is human intervention. And we point out that like the two quadrants where there is a misalignment between the reality of the system and its appearance creates a bunch of like ethical and governance challenges that we think are interesting and people should keep an eye on. And I think we were especially interested in these misalignments because there were some examples um, kind of like in the news when we were working on this paper. So one, one form of misalignment is where, you know, a system is fully automated, but it appears to the people interacting with it that it is human or involves some kind of human intervention. Um, so you can think here about like AI chatbots that try to pass off um, as human. Um, while we were working on this paper, um, Google put on this, this big demonstration of this technology that it called Google Duplex, um, which is basically an automated, an AI assistant that would like call restaurants and make reservations for you um, and do other kinds of like secretarial tasks. Um, but as soon as they presented it, like there was this huge backlash because people pointed out that like the, the humans on the other end of the phone, the, you know, the, the person taking reservations at the restaurant or whatnot, or at the hair salon, um, like 
believes that they are interacting with a human when in fact they are interacting um, with this AI chatbot. Um, and so we call this kind of misalignment skeuomorphic humanity using the language of skeuomorphism from, um, from interaction design, um, where there's this kind of like veneer or patina of, of humanness um, put on otherwise automated systems. Um, on the other side of the spectrum, the other sort of misalignment that we that we draw attention to is what some have called like faux automation. So this is where people think they're interacting with a fully automated system, um, but in fact, it's driven by a lot of human input. Um, so one example of this is the famous um, Amazon Mechanical Turk system, wherein um, people who like have tasks that they can't quite fully automate, but they can break it down into really tiny bite-sized um, micro tasks that they can like delegate in a really routinized way to unskilled people. Um, they can use this Amazon Mechanical Turk system to sort of like remotely enroll workers to do these kinds of micro tasks. Um, the output ends up looking like the task has been automated though. And in fact, for a long time, um, Amazon Mechanical Turks, um, like slow, its slogan was artificial, artificial intelligence. Um, so these are cases where people think they're interacting with automated systems, but actually there's a lot of like human interaction behind the scenes. Um, another really common example of this that I think a lot of people will be familiar with is in content moderation on social media. Um, so Facebook and other social media companies have invested a lot in convincing us that um, their content moderation is largely automated or like automation is just on the horizon um, when in fact the vast majority of content moderation on these platforms is being conducted by human content moderators working in cubicles uh, in offices around the world. Um, and so we point to these like two sets of misalignments where there there is or isn't where the question of a human in a loop is sort of complicated by this sort of appearance reality distinction, um, where we, we think a human is in the loop, but they aren't, or where we think a human is not in the loop, um, and they are. And then we sort of draw attention to some of the, the normative questions that, the, that these misalignments raise. Yeah, and maybe I want to ask about those normative questions. I, I mean, I do, I want to ask a preliminary question, though, which is more about the categorization scheme. And, you know, I I kind of like the two by two matrix, and you know, I th I found it illuminating. But then, obviously, when you reflect on it, you think that there might be certain issues with it, like the the notion of full full automation. You know, one of the critiques I see generally of claims made about artificial intelligence and automation is that the you know the automated nature of them is is constantly overemphasized. You know, there's always human input and human labor underlying a lot of automated systems. And so, you know, in a sense, because we're all interconnected and we're all involved in creating and sustaining the world around us to some extent, you could in principle argue that most of these things are kind of involve a sort of full automation or, or over-claiming for the autonomous nature of these systems. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, so I'll say a couple of things. One, um, it is it is sort of like a basic premise of science and technology studies, and it's a premise that that I I take seriously and my co-authors take seriously, which is that like at at bottom there is humanness or the the um, 
the imprints of human decision making and judgment and human values in all technological systems. And so at some basic level, um, even systems that operate like for the most part without human intervention still bear the marks of their human developers. And I think that that's true. And I, and I, I, I totally sort of take, I take that point seriously. Um, we sort of raise that question and put it to the side in the paper only because the, the normative points that we want to make um, are sort of, le- that is less relevant for the particular normative questions that we want to raise around the kinds of misalignment that we describe here. And so for the purposes of this paper and like our schema, um, we we put the the sort of question about like the the fundamental humanness of technology aside and focus on sort of more um, practical um, human intervention like in the technology's operation in the moment. Um, but again, that's like it's an analytical distinction that we make in order to just highlight and emphasize a very particular set of problems. Um, the other thing I'll say about it quickly is that like. So I, I, I love a two by two matrix. I think everybody loves a two by two matrix that can be very illuminating. Um, it is also the case that like a lot of these technologies sort of like sit right on the border between two categories um, or they, they can actually like encompass more than one category. So the Google duplex example is really interesting and kind of hilarious. So as I said before, um, you know, this chat bot that calls and makes reservations for you drew a lot of criticism because the people, the humans answering the phone didn't know that they were dealing with an automated system and that created an uproar. Um, a couple of months later, we discovered that actually, um, because the automation tasks were so technically complicated, Google Duplex was not even able to accomplish the things that it was demonstrating on stage at the Google event without significant um, human operation and oversight in the background. Um, and so it turned out that like what on the sort of surface level looked like uh, skeuomorphic humanity, it looked like an automated system with a veneer of humanness on it through human voice and inflection and so on, turned out under the hood to actually also be a case of full automation because Google was not able to produce the kinds of full automation that it promised and required a bunch of humans um, sort of tweaking things in the background in order to make it work. So these categories are like not perfect um, and they overlap and intersect, um, but we think they still like help us flag some some problems that, that make them useful in practice. Yeah, I mean, that's that example is pretty interesting, actually, that it kind of flipped, flipped between the two different um misalignments uh, once you examined it in more detail. You know, when it comes to the normative concerns, you know, obviously my initial intuition or gloss about this is that you know, the concern about skeuomorphic humanity is that it's deceptive in some way, misleading. Although, you know, some of that concern I find ironic in the sense that it, it, it has been a major aim or almost like the foundational goal of some aspects of artificial intelligence to create systems that are in some sense indistinguishable from humans at least in certain tasks maybe that has been abandoned later but i think it's still a key goal in aspects of you know social technologies and social robotics and then on the other side with full automation maybe there's a range of ethical and normative concerns you could have there one of them would maybe have to do with like 
um, exploitation or like that it hides exploitation of human workers. Like you, you could argue mm. that about the Mechanical Turk system, which of course you know the whole name of Mechanical Turk originates yeah. in a system that was hiding the fact that it was a human under the table playing chess, right? But anyway, yeah, what are the normative concerns here? Those are just two that occurred to me, but is there a, a richer set of normative concerns here? Yeah, so I think, I mean, one thing to say first is that we don't um, we don't sort of decide in advance that these misalignments are necessarily in every context um, unacceptable or wrong. Um, so it is possible that we might justify um, the, you know, a, a kind of human veneer over an otherwise automated system. We know, for example, that like the reason we borrow from the language of skeuomorphism from the design field is that, you know, one reason that designers engage in skeuomorphic design. So for example, um, you know, when the, the Mac OS operating system first came out 20 years ago or whatever, um, a lot of the applications were sort of designed to like visually mimic the things that they had digitally replaced. So the notebook app like had a spiral like binding and down down the center, um, and we you know the when you take a photo with your smartphone, it makes like a clicking sound, even though there is no mechanical mechanism that is clicking. Um, and the reason that these skeuomorphic elements are incorporated into the design is to sort of just like help people acclimate to the new technology. And so maybe for similar reasons, we might want to accept uh, to accept um, skeuomorphic AI systems going forward, it will help us acclimate to them, and so on. Um, likewise, there might be reasons we want faux automation, this is sort of like harder to come up with like a really compelling example. Um, but at least in principle, it's possible that we could come up with um, a reason to, to want a system that deceives people into thinking it's automated, even though it's not. Um, but in Ultimately, we think that in order to make those decisions, in order to decide whether or not these misalignments are socially or ethically uh, desirable, requires reasoning about them, about their capabilities, about their purposes, and so on. And ultimately, we think the misalignments undermine our capacity to reason clearly about these kinds of systems. Um, so you mentioned that they produce a kind of deception, which I think is exactly right. Um, and even if we want to sort of uh, use less morally loaded language, we could just talk about them introducing um, confusions or misunderstandings about how these systems work, um, which makes it difficult to reason either individually about them or collectively. So at an individual level, if I'm interacting with a, a system that, that exhibits what we call skeuomorphic humanity, so like the AI chatbot, um, I am deceived about like opportunities for um, contestation or intervention in the system, right? So if I'm on the phone with an AI chatbot and I think it is saying things that are like wrong or crazy or whatever, um, if I think I'm talking to a human person, but in fact I'm talking to an AI, um, I am misled about like what kinds of intervention I can make in order to correct the system that I'm dealing with. Um, on the flip side with faux automation, um, if the system appears automated but isn't, um, then I can be sort of confused or misled about the sources of error when, when I think the system 
is is acting inaccurately um, and then therefore i'm confused about potential like sources of redress like where i should direct my attempts to redress um, so for example i think the content moderation example i was describing before is a really useful one if people think that you know facebook's content moderation algorithms um, are fully automated and they think that they are producing bad uh, moderation decisions then they will mistakenly believe that like they need to direct their um, critiques at the algorithms when in fact they need to be um, focusing more on the human content moderators who are making human judgments behind the scenes. So at an individual level, it th these misalignments just make it very difficult for us to like figure out how to interact effectively with these systems, um, even if they might promise certain kinds of benefits as well. Um, and then at the collective or like the institutional or political level, um, it's even trickier. I think that these misalignments kind of undercut the public's ability to reason about whether or not these forms of automation are desirable in the first place. Um, so in the case of skeuomorphic humanity, in cases where um, systems are fully automated but appear not to be so, um, they kind of, you know, it's, it's the flip side of the point I made a moment ago where, you know, the skeuomorphism is useful because it helps acclimate us to new technologies. By the same token, um, they could threaten to sort of lull us into passively accepting um, undesirable forms of automation without fully appreciating their costs. Um, if we don't if we aren't sort of attuned to the fact that we are dealing with such systems in the first place um, and therefore thinking about how to flag potential problems and so on. Um, and with faux automation, the misalignments um, sort of mislead the public about the promise of these tools. And I think you started to suggest this um, uh, a minute ago that you know fully automating decision-making is very, very difficult. Um, and the public should know that when it's weighing whether or not to introduce these kinds of technologies into important social decision-making processes. So, you know, to take the content moderation example again, um, people might have watched in the last couple of years, the US Congress drag Mark Zuckerberg um, into these hearings to answer for uh, mis and disinformation on the platforms, to answer for abusive content, harmful content, and so on. And time and again, the claim that Mark Zuckerberg makes in order to defend Facebook is that they are this close to automating content moderation. And as soon as they're able to do that, and they're able to use automated tools to moderate content at scale, all of these problems are going to disappear. Um, and if the public thinks that content moderation is largely automated already, uh, they are likely to believe that that claim that full automation is just on the horizon is a perfectly reasonable one, um, when in fact most experts think that full content, you know, fully automated content moderation is nowhere on the horizon. Um, and so our ability to reason about what kinds of systems we want to adopt, what their costs and benefits are, what their potential um, harms are, and so on, uh, can be thwarted by this sort of misalignment between between appearance and reality. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because it's kind of like a meta-normative point that it's, it's, it uh, undermines our ability to engage in proper normative or ethical reasoning about the technology itself. 
So, exactly. yeah, look, you know, people are interested, can read the full paper. And again, we've only scratched the surface of, of both of those discussions around policing and automated decision making. But I think we'll leave it there. So uh, thank you for joining me for this conversation, Daniel. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was super fun.